Uh, good morning again. My name is Sean, and I'm one of your teaching elders here. If you would, you can turn to page 11 in your order of worship to see the text this morning. It's Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 14. You're welcome to pull up the ESV app on your smartphones or open your Bibles, however you'd like to do it. Boys and girls, you have your own translation at the bottom of page 11. And if you want to use that, or I know Miss Becky has given you one in your children's bulletin as well, you'll be wanting to look at that because I will be referring to that throughout uh, the sermon as well. So today, we're going to start a new sermon series called No More Goat Dragging. And I hope by the end of today, you will understand what goat dragging is and that you will join me in my completely intolerant stance against this practice. So what we're going to do is we're going to, over the next four weeks, is we're going to look at the book of Hebrews as a source kind of helping us deal with what this idea of goat dragging is. And so I want to start out with the question of, are you feeling clean? Because that's what we're going to look at today. Have you ever felt awkward? For some, like me, it is so common to feel awkward that you almost forget that, you know, it's not supposed to be that way. Like in the Christian story of reality, you know, humans are meant for community. And we're meant to fit together naked and unashamed. That means like not awkward. But our world is not as it's meant to be. And so awkwardness is one of those ever-present reminders that our world is just not the way it's supposed to be. A friend of mine, an RUF pastor in South Carolina, explains it this way, which I thought was a really profound way of looking at awkwardness. He says, awkwardness is the gap between who we are and who we should be. And so behind almost every awkward moment is shame. See, shame is pervasive in our church. It's pervasive in our neighborhoods. And we're going to spend the next month in the New Testament book of Hebrews trying to see how the gospel helps us in our shame. So, Hebrews. Hebrews is a book written in the first century of the church, late in the first century. And it was written to a primarily Jewish church. So these are people who, who, were, who had been Jewish, who recognized Christ as the Messiah and accepted him as such, and they were in a Jewish culture in their church. And under pressure from the government and under pressure from the external Roman culture, they were tempted to turn back to Judaism because it was both legal and culturally acceptable, where this newfound Christianity thing was not. And so the author of Hebrews writes the whole book basically to show how powerless the Old Testament system is since Jesus has come to fulfill it. So in order to show this church full of Jewish Christians how unsatisfying that Old Testament sacrificial system really was, today's passage is going to emphasize that that whole system with all the rituals, all the stuff it had could not change the heart. Rather, the solution for them and for us is to recognize that religious performance can make us good, but it, it won't make us feel good. We need real cleansing to make us good. With that in mind, if you are able, would you please stand as we read together God's word from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship. And an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. 
having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second section, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption." For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now this is God's word. Let's pray together. Now gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in a text that we might know your truth, that we might know you truly, inerrantly, authoritatively. So, Father, we pray that you would send your spirit once again and open this text up to us. Show us more of Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. And please be seated. So the whole point of this text, if I could sum it up for you, is this, that we are most fulfilled, hopeful, and happy when we connect with our Creator. When we worship him from the heart, we are fulfilled. The problem for God's people has always been how to approach him to do that. How do we approach him feeling worthy and unashamed? And that gets us to our theme today, which is this. When shame hinders us, we need a true cleansing. So we like to organize things around themes. And one of the things you can do with that is today at lunch, you know, instead of saying, well, how was church most great? We can actually, hey, well, the theme today was, you can repeat the theme, how did we see that in Hebrews 9? Did we see that in Hebrews chapter 9? How didn't we? It kind of becomes conversation fodder, so I hope you use that. So when shame hinders us, we need a true cleansing. But what we're going to see in verses 1 through 10 is that religious stuff can't cleanse our conscience. So verses 1 through 5 walk us through this Old Testament worship space called the tabernacle. It just means big tent. And the point of 1 through 5 is really simple. It's this. There's lots of stuff, there's lots of rituals, and it's really serious. Here's what it's like. I've seen this every church I've served. In fact, I saw it here two weeks ago. So kids are playing tag in the hall after church. And one of my kids runs into the pastor's study. The other kid chasing them fearfully just stops like there's a force field at the door. For one child, it's just dad's office. For the other... That's the pastor's study. You can't just run in there. Boys and girls, by the way, if one of my kids runs into the pastor's office, you run right in after them. It is okay. 
So anyway, all verse 1 through 5 want to tell us is this. You can't just walk right up to God in the Old Testament system and be all, Sup, God! It's not like that. It's serious. You have to go through all these things. Instead, verse 6 tells us that what? You have to go through all these priests. Why? Because they're performing their ritual duties. These regular, repeated, and continual ritual sacrifices and offerings. Day in and day out. It gave the people sort of a relationship with God. But there was no direct, immediate access to God through all of that. So the first section is for worship with the regular priest. The second section is for atonement. And that's for a special priest, only the high priest. And he's all, yeah, I'm a big dog and I walk around with no leash because I get to go in here once a year on the special annual day. In fact, it's coming right up. If you'll notice in your calendars, I think two Sundays from now, you'll see in your calendars Rosh Hashanah. That's the high holy day from the Old Testament that the Old Testament priest would go in behind that curtain of separation with the blood of an animal to take care of his sins and the people's sins. So it doesn't matter whether it's just a regular day or on the big annual day. This tent is covered in blood. It reeked with blood. These slain animals were then taken after they were killed and they were tossed on a giant barbecue pit. Sometimes a portion of the animal was held back and the people would celebrate together in a feast. But most of the time the entire animal was burnt up as food for God. Why all the blood? Why all the death? Why all the burning? I mean, boys and girls, you, you think God was hungry? You think, you think it was about that? You think he was having a Big Mac attack? He's like, give me an oxen and a side of goat, please. See, no, that's not what's going on here. Boys and girls, look with me at your verse 8. Here's what's going on here. The bottom, kind of mid of page 11, it says this. God set it up that way to teach his people that they cannot come right to him because of their sin. You see, all these dead animals in both rooms, the front room and the back room, to show how deep the separation is between God and his people. It's a separation that's so profound, something has to die for us to be together. Again, why am I emphasizing all this? Because those of you who've been around church world a while, we need to remember this because old covenant believers weren't that different from us. Let's get in the mindset of one of these guys. So you're laying in your tent at night. It's been a tough day out under the ancient Near Eastern sun. So it's quiet moments before you go to sleep and you're kind of reviewing your day. And you start to feel guilty. You start to feel unclean. Unsettled. Shame. He thinks about walking home from the pastures at quitting time and Ezra's flock like totally cut him off on the way to the waterhole. And he screamed out, where'd you learn to herd? Jerk. Mahashadad's wife earlier that day brought him an afternoon snack. And not only was he thinking unclean thoughts about his wife, like, where are my fig newtons? But the wind blew Mahashadad's wife's veil off her face and he like saw her cheek and was just overcome with impure thoughts. See, in other words, in these quiet moments before sleep, his conscience is bugging him. He wasn't clean. So what would he do? Well, he'd get up, he'd stretch, he'd stand outside his tent and look over his little flocks, and all of a sudden he'd see looking up at him just the cutest little baby goat from his flock. Big black eyes, meh, and he'd go, you'll do. 
And even though it's the middle of the night, like 9 p.m., he'd still drag this goat to the tabernacle, go to the priest, saw on duty in front of the tent, repeat some lines from Moses, confess his sins, and the priest would lean down ever so gingerly and take the cute little baby goat and slit its throat, pour the blood out for the forgiveness of his sins, and toss the carcass on the barbecue pit and pronounce the man clean, forgiven. And the man would walk away. And not my creativity, but the text here in Hebrews 9 says he would still not feel quite settled, not quite whole. Whereas verse 9 says his conscience was not clean. He did the stuff. but He, he did it, but he didn't dig it. You know, I love how this 2,000-year-old text speaks right to our cultural moment. You know, I'm a Gen Xer. And so I'm, a trans- I'm part of a transition generation. You know, we get to see all the big, popular, gets all the news, changes culture boomers. And we get to experience all the big, popular changes the culture millennials. And we could sit here going, you know, we're paying your Social Security and we're paying your college. Thanks for ignoring us. So anyway, that was, thank you. It was supposed to be funny. We're my Gen Xers. Are you all outside? So, but because of that, we get to see all the junk of these two huge generations that changed everything. And I love how the fact that, uh, like, the idea of authenticity is one of the ways you can really see it. For the boomers, authenticity means what? Well, it doesn't matter how I feel. This is kind of like my duty. It's just what's expected of me. So to be an authentic person means I deny my feelings and I embrace my duty. Whereas a millennial is like, what? No, man. Authenticity means you forget your duty and you be yourself. You conform to your internal emotions. And so these, these two people look at each other like, y'all are crazy. And we're looking at it going, we know you're crazy. See, why, why am I telling you that? Because this text points out that you're, not, you're both right and you're both wrong. The old covenant believer did the objective duty part. They did the stuff. Their forgiveness was objectively real. They were restored. But internally, just like a millennial, they weren't feeling it. In other words, as verse 9 and 10 make clear, that system was built on the outward, but was not built on the heart. And because we're a broken humanity, we desperately want to be whole and put our external life and our internal life together. And no matter what we do, we can't. Therefore, some generations emphasize the external and some emphasize the internal. But Christianity emphasizes in the gospel, you get both. You get to be whole. And that's what Hebrews 9 tells us here, that you In Jesus, you get to actually be clean and have the subjective feeling of knowing it. You see, those of us who've been around church for a while, we need to remember that because we forget it. We can be faithful in our church attendance, right? We can do all the stuff of church, and yet we can feel the weight of a guilty conscience. We can feel shame. The unspoken thought that we won't talk about in a small group, God is disappointed in me. I don't feel like a good Christian. I'm not enough. I need to try harder and do more. That is goat dragging. We've done the Jesus stuff. I still feel impure. I still feel broken. I still feel estranged from God. So I must need to do something more. And like the people in Hebrews 9, we aren't living in the reality of Jesus. Because when shame hinders us, we need a real cleansing Dragging that goat to the big tent didn't work for them back then, and our behavioral goat dragging doesn't work for us today. Instead, verses 11 through 14 show us that in the gospel, Jesus purifies our conscience to worship God. 
Look with me, if you will, at verses 11 and 12. It's so rich. It says this, says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by, by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, Jesus has brought about an entirely different way. And I love how we could literally translate the Greek here that Christ is the high priest bringing all the good stuff. It's so encompassing that a guy just says, let's just call it stuff. Because his work doesn't have to be repeated. Christ paid the price to rescue his people once for all. His death is the death we deserve. And we're talking about the death of Jesus, the only, unique, perfect son of God. You see, boys and girls, what the author of Hebrews is telling us here is this. The gospel is not that we get good stuff by being really good ourselves and trying really hard. Those are good things to try hard to, to obey your parents, but that's not what you do to make God love you. I know Miss Becky is so good at teaching you that. You see, like what verse 12 shows us here is that all that good stuff only comes through Jesus. So let's look at your translation boys and girls let's look at the very end of your translation verses 13 and 14 says this so think about it if the death of an animal could clean the outside of god's people how much more will the death of jesus the innocent and pure son of god clean the inside so we can feel clean and really worship god you see all of us boys and girls adults the blood of animals didn't get it done it could restore the person to a community. They could participate in worship in the tabernacle, but they still felt there was an issue inside. They still felt unclean. They still felt ashamed. But Jesus' blood will actually cleanse the inner person, tearing down the dividing curtain, giving us direct access to God. Now, here is in church worlds where we need a little bit of theological clarity. The emphasis in this last part, verses 11 through 14, is on Christ's life just as much as on Christ's death. It's not just that Jesus died for us. We're really good about that one. It's that Jesus lived for us. We're a little unclear on that one. So let's think about it in money terms, right? We are massively in debt to God because of our sin. We've all heard the EE presentation. We got that one, yes. And the death of Jesus does what? It forgives us of our sin and gets us to zero. So we're broke, but we are debt-free. But how many of you are like, can I have that deal right now in real life? Right? But the story doesn't end there. For so many of us, it does. We think, right, and now that Jesus has got me to zero, it's my job to be really good and impress God with my righteousness. No. The life of Jesus is then applied to us And we are made incredibly rich in God. Our sins are put on Jesus to set us free. His righteousness is put on us so that we can flourish. We are made rich in God. But we don't believe that. And so we still feel impoverished as Christians, don't we? See, but verse 9 reminds us that Jesus' purity of life becomes our purity. His work purifies our conscience. What's the point of all this? So what? The very last thing it says in the verse 14. Because with a purified conscience, we can serve the living God. Serve is the same word for worship. It's only with a clean conscience that we can worship God. Here's why this is important. 
Because if you don't get this, you are burdened with shame. You're weighed down by guilt. I want to show you a picture from a, uh, an illustrated version of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Here's a picture of Pilgrim at the very beginning of his journey when he starts to recognize his sin. He is weighed down by this incredible burden of sin. And dear Christian, you could be forgiven of Jesus, but if you don't appropriate his life for you, you live in this reality. And you feel burdened and ashamed and you don't worship God. Because the end of verse 14 says we are free to serve the living God. Feelings of guilt and defeat keep Christians depressed and inactive. Shame stops us from serving and worshiping God. We hear the voice of the shame attendant at night before we fall asleep. You were an angry driver today. You did call that guy a jerk when he cut you off. You murdered in your heart. You did look lustfully at that person. You did think poorly of someone who loves you because they didn't perform for you. You did judge others today. You are not a good Christian. You are not enough. We hear those things. And instead of fleeing to Jesus in the gospel, we drag a goat back to the tabernacle. We do. When those accusations come, we remember our failures. And to combat that shame, what do we do? I'll do better tomorrow. I'll read my Bible more. I'll read my Bible now. I'll try harder to be a good Christian. I'll show God I'm faithful. Then I'll feel clean. Then God won't be so disappointed in me. That is dragging a goat to the tabernacle. Instead of resting in the work of Jesus to cleanse us, we rest in our efforts to cleanse us. And to quote that modern philosopher, Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? You see, looking to your religious efforts, your external efforts for internal peace is dragging a goat to the tabernacle, and it doesn't work. When you look to your efforts, you ignore what Jesus has done for you. Let me translate this into Presbyterian for y'all that need to hear it. I can do this. One will never have the fruit of peace in one's life. If one believes that acceptance before God rests on one's sanctification rather than on one's justification. Okay, those of you who grew up Baptist like me, y'all, you will never be happy in Jesus if you, don't, if you keep thinking your works save you. Stop it. We are free now in the gospel. We are called clean now in Jesus because of what he has done, not because of what we have done. Dear flock, are you hearing me? You can be free from the shame that paralyzes you. That makes you keep your family at a distance. Your friends at arm's length. That makes you doubt God's love. Quit spending all your energy dealing with your guilt. And let the life of Jesus wash the guilt from you. And then from that place, your heart will leap with gratitude. And joy at what Jesus has done. You will want to love and obey and serve God because you are free from guilt and shame. That's what this passage is trying to tell us. Here's what that looks like just in my life. Let me just kind of show you candidly how this works for me. When the accuser comes late at night, when the shame attendant, some people call him, or if you've been in corporate America, the big HR director who lives in the the sky, okay, when he comes and starts giving me my evaluation of the day, Instead of feeling guilty, 
instead of wallowing in shame, say out loud. Do it. Your spouse will jump. It's okay. She won't leave. You're absolutely right. I am that bad. But my Savior is that good. He has forgiven and cleansed me of that already. Thank you for reminding me. I forgot to thank him for that. See, instead of the accuser leading you to guilt and shame because of your sin, let the remembrance of your sin lead you to worship the Savior who has cleansed you from it. As we wrap this up, I want you to think about the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question one. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Do you enjoy God Martin Luther, before he rediscovered the gospel and studying the book of Galatians, confessed that he did not love God, that he hated him. And if you are weighed down by guilt, you don't enjoy God. You actually hate him because you are exhausted from dragging the goat of your effort to God and not feeling any relief. But you're exhausted because that's not Christianity. The gospel is we don't drag our goats to God for slaughter because Jesus dragged himself to the cross for us. Oh, dear Christian, do you know Jesus like that? Because when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, you're brought into union with him. In Jesus, you are adopted as a beloved daughter a beloved son of the Father. And then that super secret special second room, the Holy of Holies, that special place where in their mind God lived, just simply becomes dad's office and you can run right in. Because that's your dad. Because you've been adopted in Jesus and he sees you as he sees his son, clean, perfect, holy. Oh, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, that is your birthright. Don't let shame rob you of it. Quit your goat dragon. And if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or if you're watching today and you wouldn't call you a Christian, or, or if you're in conversations with your non-Christian neighbors, and don't you want to be free from shame? That amorphous guilt that follows you around, that, that unnamed depression that is just part of your life? That is a holy God revealing your guilt before him. Don't think you have to do something to appease him or change yourself before he will love you. No, goat dragon has been abolished. Instead, look to the resurrected Jesus in faith. Repent and believe the gospel. Cast aside everything you think you know about Christianity or everything you've called religion and simply place your faith and trust in the resurrected Lord. He will cleanse you of your shame. I mean, don't wait. Do it now. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel, but we confess that even now our hearts don't want to believe it. Even now the shame attendant is whispering our failures, our darkness, our secrets to our heart and saying, don't believe it. You can't be clean from that. And Father, would you help us to believe yet again in your gospel because we don't. Would you help us, Lord, to believe not just in the death of Jesus for us, but the life of Jesus for us. And would you help us to walk in the reality of the clean conscience we already have. Would you help us to feel it, Lord. 
Uh, we pray, Lord, that for those here who, who may not know you, that you would do your work of salvation, that you would draw people to yourself and cause them to confess faith in Christ. And we ask all this, Lord, in his powerful name. Amen.